everybody, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, a podcast about the classical world, education, philosophy, all kinds of stuff. My name is AJ Hannenberg, and I'm joined by my two compatriots, Mr. Thomas Magby. Hi. And Graham Donaldson Wilson. Wilson. Uh, I'm just kidding. Graham Donaldson. And we are, yeah, I guess first, sorry for no episode last week, uh, Graham was sick and could not make his voice do things. And so we are back after a short hiatus, a missed episode or two, and we have more stuff for you today, supposedly about writing. I don't know if I was sick. I just had no voice. I think it was an allergy thing. Oh, really? I thought you were sick. I thought you were like full sick. No, I was, I mean, it was one of those things where maybe I thought I was sick, but then when I lost my voice, because allergies, so people who don't live or haven't been to Austin in springtime, I don't know if we're the worst pollinated place in North America, but gosh darn, we're like gunning for it. I've heard that if you don't have allergies, you can move to Austin and then develop allergies. And I think that's very true. There, uh, now when the trees, when all the oak trees flower and, and pollinate, I just, every couple of years, they'll be, it'll just be real bad and I lose my voice. So you, you think you're getting a fever and then you realize it's just allergies. We call it cedar fever. It's pretty bad. And isn't mold and cedar pretty yeah, high? Yeah. Anyway, whatever. This is rough. Well, so was, in yeah. Austin, there's like a uh, there's an allergen every season. So yes. like normally you get a break in it if yeah. you're in other cities, but mm-hmm. not in Austin. So that's a part of it. And I forget about it. You'll travel to like another place and you'll be like, oh, the air is clear. You don't feel like you're, I don't know, breathing through a porta filter or something. Yeah. Oh no, I love the air in Austin because it always smells sweet. You notice that when you get yeah, off the plane? Yeah, it's all pollen. It's awesome. It really? And the, well, it's the pollen, and it's also the the uh, the barbecue pits. Mm, I'm okay with that. <laughs> Whatever it is, I, I go to Washington, and it smells kind of like dirt or dust. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then I get off the plane here, and it smells like honeysuckle. It's awesome. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Um, anyway, yeah. So what we're going to be talking about? It's actually uh, this is in memoriam for the death of writing. Oh, um, good. I didn't know. Yeah, uh, <laughs> because we no longer need to write anything anymore. Yeah, the, the computers will do all the writing for us. Are doing Great. The writing for Why us. do you think we're doing this rather than writing books? We yeah, were ahead of the, the ahead of the curve. Ahead of the curve. <laughs> actually, this is a this podcast. Actually, is we are not real people. Yeah. This we are. AI it's all AI. AI. All AI. Yeah. Have you all seen um, any of those AI generated podcasts? They're no, I watched they AI, have AI podcasts. Yeah. Uh, I watched an AI genera- generated um, like anime t- uh, television show. <laughs> I heard about it, but I didn't watch it. It's pretty brutal. Yeah, but no. it, so it was all anime. So <laughs> I've also heard AI generated music, and it is it's bad. Ear puke. It's yeah. terrible. Okay. Like what's terrible? Like it, it, well, almost literally everything. Okay, got yeah. it. Okay, but anyway, stuff I've heard, and yeah. maybe that's what we will end up talking about because. What I wanted to talk about in this episode is, so years ago on, a, on this podcast, I think it's like episode 30-something, we wrote, or we did an episode called How to Write Gooder. And it was an episode that we did on AJ, a book that you and I both use, but you've used way more than me. Uh, is, it, is it Strunk and White? No, Stone and Bell. What? Yeah, no, the Elements is, of Style, elements oh, of style oh, oh. by Strunk and White, and then Pro, what is it, Prose Style yeah. by Stone and Bell. And so then here's Prose Style by Stone and Bell. This is what we're going to be talking about today. And... Um, this is pretty much more of a like practical, this isn't a ph- ph- episode on philosophy or an episode on history. This is, if you want to, um, have a voice in writing, uh, uh, it's not just something that you have to like generate yourself or you have to reinvent the wheel. There are ways to, um, develop tone and styles of writing that you can you can put into your own writing. And the reason why I've been thinking about this recently is, um, well, one, uh, ch- uh, GP- chat GPT or GPT-4 has now come out. And we, as a faculty, as an English faculty, we have been generating essays on GPT-4 to see how it writes. Also, our students have been generating episodes on GPT-4 and turning them in as their own assignment. And I mean, we can maybe talk later about like the arms race of cheaters versus cheat detection software, and that's not really what I'm what I'm kind of wanting to get at. Um, but the thought that I sort of had this this realization that, or I, I have a, a not a worst case scenario, but a scenario I think is likely, which is that if we have AI doing a lot of the the production work of our mundane writing, emails. Um, our mass marketing, the copy we have for our businesses, um, uh, and these kinds of things, we're actually going to have a style of writing that is kind of frozen in time from now and everything that's sort of come before. Because now, Thomas, you can probably correct me on this. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But a the generative AI is essentially like 
reheating old material. Like it is taking the, the volume of old material and packaging it into whatever parameters you've asked it to do, right? Sure. I think I've, we've, so GPT is generative pre-trained transformer. Yeah. So it's pre-trained is what mm-hmm. you're commenting on. Yeah. It needs a data set to learn how to do language. Yes. And I think, I think 40% of that data set is Wikipedia. Yeah. So most of what you're getting is, oh, it's, no. it's going to, well, you need it for the like, because you can ask GP, chat GPT about like yeah, historical about events mm-hmm. and it will answer sometimes wrong. But anyway, but you get things that sound like Wikipedia yeah. is maybe a part right. of what you're saying. Yeah. And then also, so um, uh, what it, there's also, AJ, you have the subscription to the one that makes pictures, right? We actually use that AI art for our, our a lot of our episodes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, not not usually not our episodes that go up on Squarespace, but if you're on Patreon, right. any the, of the background stuff, any yep. of the in-between, I've started using generative stuff because it's easier than trying to find images that are in the public domain. At least they're cooler. Yeah. So I started using it. Yeah, you can go check it out. There's one or two I've tried to sneak by on our actual That's episodes. Funny. You can go and try to someone, figure out which one those are. Someone found it. Yeah, well, I got one guy that I did correctly yeah. identified it, but... I also have it a subscription. It was probably an AI guy. It wasn't a guy. It was <laughs> yeah, actually a computer. Yeah, exactly. I also have a subscription to ChatGPT, and I have it up yeah. right now if you want me to generate something oh, fun maybe, to work maybe. with. Um, uh, ask it. Maybe, well, see if it knows me. Say like, I'll uh, say, hey, tell us how to, tell us the basic elements of style and how to write well. As if you were well. Graham Donaldson. See if it okay, here we go. I got it. <laughs> anyway, um, but people have also been saying when it comes to generating art images, we say generate this picture in the style of Van Gogh or generate this picture in the style of whatever. And um, some of the people's podcasts that I've listened to or interviews that I've, that I've been paying attention to, um, some people are saying, well, this, does, this, this could potentially mean that a lot of our visual culture could be kind of stuck because if, if generative AI is going back and using basically the images of the past to create images now that's not a very that's not an innovation on visual culture that's just sort of like a rehashing and if that's going to be true with writing well um, uh, then 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 our writing is also kind of get kind of get stuck with the kind of diction that we use right the kind of words that we use in 2023 or the kind of words that we've been using on the internet because that's what the chat GPT is is pulling from any of the kinds of ways that we formulate sentences or the ways that or the word choices that we use or the way that we create not just emails but like academic documents or whatever, um, the algorithm is going to be stuck in that um, using basically that data set, right? Like if, if it has a fixed data set, it's just going to continue to create things from that, from that data set. Sure. And then the data set of the future is just going to be an iteration on the old data set. Could be, or a new data set entirely. Or a new data set yeah. gets, gets put into it. So anyway, in light of this, I've just been thinking about like, okay, well, then instead of trying to have students all be standardized in their writing, so let's get them all writing five-paragraph essays in a very standardized way, which is probably how you were taught. Did you, what are you smiling I at? just sent you the what ChatGPT would say as if it were you as the basic elements of style. How you'll do find, you even know find what it is? You'll find it in your email. So yeah. I just, so in this, as we started this conversation, I got access to Bard, which is Google's new mm-hmm. uh, version of ChatGPT oh, or whatever. Thanks for paying attention, guys. And, yeah, I'm not paying any attention. <laughs> but anyway, so I, I also have a script on Stone and Bell's pro style in the style of classical stuff you oh should know. Geez. So great. When it, are you sending it to Graham? You want him I to sent it? it. I emailed it to Graham. Okay. Okay. Sure. I guess I'll do that too. Uh, but I'll hold on to it. Knows who I am? I think all it did was say, as Graham Donaldson. Mm. Like, it just puts your name at the beginning. Oh, that's dumb. Same here. It just adds Clarity, classical economy, stuff you should know. coherence, tone, voice, imagery, syntax. Well, that is the podcast, uh, so I guess we're done. No, I was kidding. How's this for, hello and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know, the podcast where we discuss the classics and why they matter. How's that for, do you That's a way better intro. That's way better than we do. That's, <laughs> they don't listen to us at all. Way too professional. Yeah. I tried to make a joke on Donaldson's name this time, but just accidentally threw Wilson at the end. It wasn't funny at all. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, it's... But see if that AI could be unfunny. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but anyway, my point being like, okay, so if um, a lot of the way that we were taught is very much like we tried to get everybody who was writing to kind of get like a standardized kind of writing thing, a standardized writing test. We all have to take some kind of standardized writing test. Um, and um, that's that kind of – that maybe skill set is probably not going to be very valuable if – we can have a computer that can do a standardized writing. Um, but 
so I wanted to talk a little bit about like how can somebody who is writing, who wants to communicate, how can they actually find a voice or write in different kinds of tone or style as part of their communication so that they, um, instead of sort of being stuck in a, um, a computer AI generated essay. That's kind of my... Uh, um, Is that a question to us or do you have no, do I mean, you I'm, have postulates? Well, I, I've got... I mean, so this book that we've used at Veritas uh, by Stone and Bell called Pro Style, which is... It's quite charmingly written in the 1960s during the height of the counterculture. So all of his, like, examples that he uses are about, like, hippies and... I think there's a revised version from the 80s. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yeah. that uh, sounds... Co- but get totally the hippie less, one. It's great. <laughs> um, the revised one in the 80s is probably all about, like... Wall Street yuppies uh-huh. or something. I don't know. Uh-huh. <laughs> but the hippie counterculture one is really great because the examples he uses are like, imagine there's a beatnik. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but anyway, so... You could um, join a biker gang. <laughs> this, so the, the book is great. The, the places that I wanted to focus on are his... Um, his the, the chapter that he has on tone errors. Um, and uh, Tone errors, and then also he has some preferences that you can add that you, these are questions or preferences that you can put into your own writing. Um, so if you are having to write an essay or if you're having to write something, um, there are a series of number of number of like basically preferences that you can give yourself to go through and edit your paper. And it's going to give your writing a little more life and feel a little more human. Um, so, um, in pro style, he gives uh, um, he talks about like the various to- kinds of tone that people can do. Um, this is a fun game. Let's see if you guys can tell me the definition of of, of, of these. Of, if you can give me the definition of you these know, tones without using your computers, lads. A- AJ's going to know the answer to every one of these, right? I don't think so. I don't okay. think AJ teaches tone. Yeah, but I've read the thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, how long ago? I remember everything. All right, let's see. What, let's do it. All right, Thomas, and you're uh, you're you know the 16th seed. Let's just okay, see if yeah. you can uh, do this. Do, thing. do the upset. All right, so. Different kinds of tone you can write in. Um, let's start with exhortation. The okay. tone of exhortation. What is an exhortative tone? I don't even know how to answer this question. What do you like, mean? like a tone, like a style of writing. Like if you, if you're right, well, uh, uh, I would say preachy. You're trying to get someone to do stuff. Get some, yeah. So let me hear. It. So maybe I should give a Pedantic. definition of tone. Um, in every written statement, there is an implied voice a tonal quality that reveals the writer's attitude towards his subject matter and towards his audience. Is he objective, angry, contemptuous, indifferent, amused, cynical, ironical, sentimental? That's what he means by tone. Okay. So, well, you said very, you said preachy? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that, I mean, that is a point to AJ. Sorry, Tom. That's a great answer. I, yeah. I, I don't, that doesn't bother me. Yeah, so the, uh, uh, the uh, exhortation, like the voice of the preacher, you're trying to persuade somebody. Uh, Bard tells me the tone of exhortation is typically one of encouragement, motivation, and inspiration. Yeah, there you go. I thought that was a great answer. Um, also. Did, can Bard give us like a an, an, uh, a scenario? Can you give us an example in an, in an exhort a tone of exhortation? Of just give me an example of exhortation. Yeah. Okay. Exhort me to work out. I've already typed in oh. the give me an example of exhortation. It's going to take a little while. That's uh, fine. Oh. Sure. Here's an example. We can do this. We are strong and capable, and we will overcome this challenge together. We will make a difference. There you go. This exhortation is encouraging and motivating, and it uses strong, positive language to inspire people to take action. Sure does. All right. Next tone. We'll see if the, how good the computer is at okay. this. This is actually turning into a much more depressing podcast because <laughs> I thought I was going to give people the key to be more human, yes. um, but in reality, the computer is doing it just as well. It's doing a great job. Um, all right, uh, what is an invective tone? To be invective, I'll tell you. As you as idiots as should be able to figure this out. Uh, typically, I one of anger, hatred, or disgust. There you go. I just gave it away. Well, no, also, yeah, the, okay. Yes, it, yes. It is so used the, to express strong disapproval to, or contempt. Yes. It is undisguised anger and name calling. Look, this bard thing is pretty good. Right? Belittling. This thing is actually pretty good, huh? Yeah, it's belittling. It is belittling. belittling. It's a good answer. Um, wh- I mean, Stone and Bell goes in uh, and he says, you know, there's, there's a, it's rare that you want to use an invective tone, but being able to deploy it in certain circumstances is necessary. If you are actually having to communicate to, maybe not belittling, but if you are, um, if you are needing to communicate your displeasure to like a group of high schoolers over their behavior, um, you would need to have some kind of passion of an invective tone. If, if you were sort of very, if, if the prepared statement you read was very sort of bland, it's, you know, that's not going to get the message across. But, there, but if you need to, um, if you need to sort of communicate um, the content in a certain kind of tone, 
Well, the invective tone is that. You, you, right. you need it to be, it can't just be calm and analytical. There are certain times you need to deploy the tone of, of passion to be able to communicate anger at a certain situation, a situation that's worth being angry for. Um, and so you can, you know, sort of, um, yeah. You can I have combinations of these? Can I have an invective that's also exhortation? I think so, probably. Um, um, but with exhortation, that's more of the, like, you're trying to persuade and admonish, right? You're trying yeah. to encourage, whereas with, so maybe it's like you start off with invective and then there's some kind of turn. Uh, and the, so you can have multiple. You can have yeah, all, sort of multiple things okay. in, a, in a speech, right? Interesting. Um, never before have I been so disappointed in a group of students than I have been in the behavior that I witnessed this morning, right? That's an invective tone. Um, uh, and then you can move into some sort of exhortation of like... Um, Do better. Uh, but I, and I am... But the, the, what I've seen from you in the past leads me to, to believe that it doesn't have to be as bad as I just witnessed. You guys can. I have seen you be able to do better, and I know we can all do better. And then we like, oh. right? So, yes, you can sort of uh, employ these tones okay. together. Um, all right. Well, uh, satire. Satire is a kind of tone. What's satire? Funny is not a tone. Sarcasm, essentially. Yeah. Well, no, it's not It's not just sarcasm. There's actually, I think there's a difference it between to, satire and sarcasm. It is to bring to light the failures of humankind but by the showing t- them in a comedic way. I mean, that, that's strictly satire. What's the tone? Like, that's the comedy? Like, is that the tone? Well, the tone is that you are trying, with satire, you're trying to right a wrong. So, uh... Using, using humor. You, right. By pointing yeah, things yeah. out. Ridicule aimed at correcting a folly. That's, yep. that's the definition. Whereas a sarcasm is ridicule that doesn't necessarily aim to correct a folly. You just want to laugh um, at it or point out the absurdity. Yeah. According, I don't know if this is true, but Stone and Bell in their pro style says that the etymology of the word satire means to tear the, f- sorry, sarcasm, means sarcasm to tear is. the flesh. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know if that's true. Maybe it is. It is. Yeah. We did this back, we did an episode on satire forever ago. Oh, that's right, and that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So and so to tear the flesh. And so if you've ever been on the receiving end of satire, or sorry, of sarcasm, you know that the goal is to sarcasm tear. can really sort of tear things down. Whereas a satire is attempting to, um, to correct a folly. So the, the, the example that I always think of with satire is that British parliamentarian in the like 17th century um, or 18th century who was trying to showcase that the British were very cruel towards the Irish um, and no one really cared that he was like... Ooh, isn't a, this Jonathan Swift? Maybe. He was yeah. on a soapbox about like, oh my word, that they're so cruel to the Irish. And so he actually proposed a bill in Parliament saying, in order to alleviate the current famine, which was going on, I propose that we eat the Irish. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think he proposed a bill. He wrote an essay called A Modest Proposal. Oh, there he is. That's it. And I think it is Jonathan Swift. Yeah, yes. A yeah. Modest Proposal is to eat the Irish. Mm-hmm. That is a satire because it is meant to... Isn't it eat babies? Like, yeah, eat before, the Irish before children. Before a bunch age, of stuff. He makes gloves out of them too. Like there's a whole thing. In yeah. And he's doing it to, as a satire to showcase. Listen, we have so we have so mistreated the Irish that this is this is where we're we're trucking towards. Right. Um, that is meant at correcting a folly, being it and uh, uh, being satirical in that way. And we we, ha- we do have a whole episode on satire. Is take is takes a tremendous amount of wit, like taking these things that shouldn't go together and putting them together. But you have a folly that you're trying to correct. Um, um, and uh, and it requires a certain amount of um, like knowledge and tone of other people. Um, it's like an indirect way of of kind of like insulting people, not insulting people, but but kind of stirring them to action by showing them something so crazy uh, or so uh, um, absurd that they begin to realize m- my behavior or motivations that I have towards the subject are in fact absurd. I've just become blind to them. Yeah. Sarcasm is is a is basically that more like direct assault as opposed to like correcting folly. It's trying to like bring someone down, humiliate. You them. think you're so smart, yeah. But I'm here to to show you that's not. Um, I find that our students don't really need to learn sarcasm. Uh, it's kind of the. It's kind of the language of the internet, isn't it? Uh, but you can do sarcasm well, and you can do it poorly. Can you do it well though? In a modest proposal, it's done well. That's, that's satire. satire. Oh, are you just saying sarcasm or satire? What are we talking about? I'm talking about sarcasm. Can sarcasm ever be a useful tool? Didn't we talk about how it can be a useful tool to highlight something somebody needs to fix in sure. a, in an inoffensive way? Yeah. Nah, it's But it's not always inoffensive. I don't know. But it doesn't care about the solution, which is, yeah. I think, your point, Graham, yeah. of 
So the improvement is to make it satire yeah. instead of sarcasm, right? Mm-hmm. So I just asked ChatGPT to satirize three white men in their 30s making a podcast. What does it say? It's uh, it's pretty bad. Maybe I'll post it under the episode. Okay. Okay. It's, it's my point is that it's not it's not done well. It's done worse than maybe our seniors would do. Oh, okay. Um, but anyway, what I the, those yeah actually I even uh, those are examples that Stone and Bell talks about in terms of positive tone. But it's the to- it's the errors in tone that I think are really instructive, and so we're going to go over them. Okay. Um, the first tonal error is uh, the error in tone. So a thing that you can slip into. The first tonal error is sentimentality, is being sentimental. Now, what do you think is the definition of, of being sentimental? Overly feely. It's, yeah. mo- it's maudlin and sweet and cloying. Yeah, that it's, 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 a, it's a feeling, it's a counterfeit emotion, a counterfeit feeling either in excess or it's filled with cliches. Um, I feel like modern writing tends to sentimentalize the mundane mm-hmm. and, and older authors didn't, do, didn't as much. Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? I think it's my own, but we want to make the average life a little more sentimental than it is. Yeah. Um, let's see if I can give the, uh, this is what Stone and Bell says about sentimentality. Sentimentality is a way of not facing reality. It prettifies things rather than seeing them as they are. The sentimentalist believes not in a love, but in true love. An ideal absolute that exists only as a fantasy and has nothing to do with real relations between real people. What he hates above all else is the complexity, ambiguity, and mess of actual life. Okay, so maybe I was a little hard on modern writing. Um, we do that pretty well. Uh, yeah, but the... Um, this sounds like a style book that would actually be fun to read. It is a fun read. It is so fun. Sorry, I just, I didn't even, like, again, I, I hear style and think dry, boring, but that was just, that was really But good. he even, like, makes observations about people. Like, he's, later on he says, scratch a sentimentalist and you will usually find a person capable of cruelty or at least an unlovely indifference to the distress of others. Um, because they don't have the right, because the sentimentalist has the, they're usually just um, talking about the emotion that they know they think they should be feeling and therefore are like over leveraging the language. Um, because be- they don't really feel because it. Because they don't yeah. actually feel it themselves. Um, I always think about like a pro athlete that was contractually obliged to go to like a sick kid's ward of a hospital yep. and talks about like these are the real heroes or like that kind of thing, right? Or in I get this often in ninth grade essays where they talk about how the Odyssey is such a wonderfully epic piece of literature that will change all literature. And they don't actually believe it. No ninth grader actually believes <laughs> yes. in this thing. They've, they have marginally enjoyed it because they've been forced to read it in school. And so right. it comes off as this really amped up thing. I think they think I like it when they write about the Odyssey in that way. Right, mm-hmm. I, that's what they're. What, that's what's trying to happen. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so it's this. It's this um, an emotion in the excess of fact. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds exactly like the introduction yeah. for the Odyssey papers um, I just read. But it's a sentimentality that. So it's a tone. It's an error in tone that comes across from almost like an error in character. Um, that yeah. it's somebody trying to make up for their own. Um, um, yeah, describing what a person wishes they feel than what they th- themselves actually do feel. Inauthenticity based on lack. Yeah. Um, and I see this uh, a lot in people who are trying to convince other people about, like, a law or, 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 or think about, like, people having some sort of open mic public discourse where they're trying to communicate their thought about something. Maybe this isn't sentimentality. Um, it was the, the example it's that I think of. It's an attempt at pathos. Mm-hmm. It's it's an attempt at rhetorical pathos that mm-hmm. maybe goes too far into the sentimental. Yeah. But it's a pathos where it's too. like you don't realize how strong, how deep I feel about this certain thing, and trying to like have someone's mind changed based on trying to describe to them the depth of your feeling on the issue. That's is that that's not really sentimentality. Uh, that's probably a different error. Not it's not quite. But similar. But yeah. Anyway, there, I, another... I just sort of see that. that that's also, uh, and maybe this is a, a persuasive discourse no-no, which is trying to persuade other people on your point of view based on you communicating to them to the depth of the feeling that you have, the depth of your own conviction on it. It's essentially an appeal to pity, but not mm-hmm. so much pity as an appeal to, it's an, what is it, appeal to emotion, mm-hmm. right? Um, which is pathos, but it's the, you can't base your logic on it. If you do this, 
you are literally killing me. Like it's that kind That's of yeah, yeah, that kind yeah. of yeah. of of um, argument by saying that if you do this, it is going to so strongly and profoundly move me that. This is why this is an argument against it. I think that's ad misericordium. I yeah. think is the. Let me look it up. There's a. Is it a, a fallacy or? Yeah, it's, a, a, it's yeah, an, yeah. an informal fallacy. Um, anyway, uh, to finish off, to round out the little section on on sentimentality, uh, Stone and Bell says. Um, um, uh, oh, here you go. Mm. Admers, Admers recordium, it's a fallacy illicitly appeals to pity or a related emotion such as sympathy, compassion, or mercy in order to gain the acceptance of an unrelated conclusion. Mm. Even so, not all appeals to pity are fallacious. For example, if I say, this orphan needs your help, you have money, mm-hmm. you should help him. That's probably not a fallacious appeal to pity, but you should vote for this senator or I will cry into my cereal mm-hmm. is, is a complete yeah. appeal to pity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, to end this, it says, um, um, let's see if I can find it. Yeah, scratch the sentiment. This brings us to the illusion we began with. It was probably not just chance that brought hate and love into such an uneasy juxtaposition in that football player's theme. Uh, this He's making a, talking about a previous example. But something more fundamental in his life, some deep-lying feeling of resentment or insecurity. His words described what he wished he felt or thought he ought to feel, not what he did feel. Sentimentality is a pretense, a masquerade, a protective device. It pretends to be full, but it is empty. As John Galworthy said, I don't know who that is, uh, sentimentism is a working off of yourself of feelings you haven't really got. Um, so um, uh, that sort of error in tone, the only way to, to sort of compensate, well, there's sort of, when you're working with students, when you're working with 15-year-olds or, 16, or you're with teenagers, if you're wanting to get them to be real authentic in their writing, um, um, if you sort of like really push for authenticity, don't be surprised if you actually end up getting um, like immature thoughts because they're, because they're, they're still young. They, they haven't felt it yet. They haven't felt these things yet. And so what students sort of will naturally do instead of putting themselves out there and, um, and sort of showcasing their own, being overly sentimental is they will revert to very formulaic writing. Uh, they will revert to sort of like a very paint-by-numbers way of like trying to get information down on paper as opposed to some kind of like expression of self. So Because they don't want to tell the teacher that they didn't really like the Odyssey much. Right? Yeah. Because everyone seems to agree that it's good, but they don't feel it. Yes. Right? So, yeah. um, so what they do is they, they go really over, they go super overboard and like this is the, the greatest book that I've ever read or they never talk about the work itself as, right. uh, as, as something. They sort of are trying to get the paper done. Yes. Um, the two, next two errors in tone are pomposity and highbrowism, according to Stone and Bell. Um, pomposity, pomposity would be something that is more too formal, whereas highbrowism is where you are trying to impress the person. Um, <laughs> I've read books like that. Yes. So, pom- so pomposity <laughs> is not where you're... That's awesome. That's awesome. You're not trying to be pompous in terms of like you're trying to impress the person that's highbrowism, yeah. but pomposity is where you are... Um, you're remote, that you don't have any sort of relationship to the reader. Um, so this would be like the prepared press statement. Yeah. Um, or oh, okay. Let me read the example that he gives. He gives... Uh, the following pas- passage is an address given by a dean at an American university. He is welcoming the freshman class. Um, so give me a university. Let's just make one up. Whitworth University Whit- in Spokane, Whitworth Washington. Whitworth University. Although it's a great, great college. I would like to welcome you to Whitworth University and to express the hope that your educational work will be most productive and rewarding. I am sure you will find that members of the university community are most willing to help you achieve the maximum benefit from the curriculum <laughs> and to have an enjoyable and satisfying learning experience at Whitworth. The program, which is designed to facilitate learning, involves the imparting of knowledge through research. To maximize learning, the university has made provision for small classes, close student-faculty contact, high-quality instruction, and personalized education. Yeah. Now, that's a boiler... I'm so bored. But that, and that's like a boilerplate statement. That feels like ChatGPT is, is what that feels like. And this is, my, this is the sort of uh, another thing I was trying to get to, is that I think ChatGPT... The data set that ChatGPT has is not a data set of like 
sentimentality, but it's going to be a data set of sort of like um, that kind of boilerplate. Um, um, Distant. Yeah. Um, Stone Bell says, what is wrong with this passage? Simply that when we hear language like this, we don't believe a word of it and we don't believe the speaker believes a word of it either. The dean is welcoming the freshmen, but he doesn't say so. He said he would like to welcome them. He presumably hopes that they will get a lot out of their work, but he doesn't say so. He said he would like to express the hope. This formal double talk, this reluctance to be simple and straightforward is the antithesis of communication. What sort of welcome or helpfulness is there in words like program and personalized education (laughs) and learning experience? What kind of education isn't personalized? This Mm. is the language for computers, not people, says Stone and Bell in 1968. Let's go, Stone and Belt. Man, yeah. I like that book. Thomas, really, if you haven't read it, you... I haven't read it. One of y'all gave me a copy of it years ago, and I still have not read it. But it, so, is, it is not only informative, it's enjoyable. Yeah, that's so, it is, yeah. so that pomposity is something that turns personal relations into abstractions. I, I would like to express my hope that you, are, that you enjoy it, as opposed to... I hope you enjoy it. Welcome <laughs> to my school. Yeah. We as a faculty have been looking forward to this freshman class and we you know are get are excited to get to work together right like some kind of you look eager and yeah. i am just as eager to get to know you as you are to be, to get to know exactly. about science or english or whatever um and again that pomposity is an e- very easy pardon me um sort of tonal error to slip into and it's one that probably people in the business world do a lot because you can't be blamed for anything. That's right. Because there, there's nothing in it. Yes. It, 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 it mistakes sort of, were made or whatever. Yeah. Yes, mistakes were made. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, that's, that's passive voice. That's one version of this. Mm-hmm. But it's, it is a way to avoid any sort of culpability or personal stake in what you're saying. It's absolute. It's just to fill the space, right? And again, the, that the person never puts on the line, I feel this way. It's that you are welcome or I would. It, yeah. Mm-hmm. They, yeah, they're not in the mix at all. Right, exactly. they and if someone ever calls them on it, like you never said hi. Just, yeah, exactly. I was, I was, you know. And then he gives another example. Um, Here is part of a report by an education student on an experiment in which music, classical music, was piped into the corridors of a high school. So piping music into the high school. Oh, cool. Here's the report. The hypothesis, therefore, Ugh. is that music can reduce the intensity dimension of the student, Ugh. so that he what is remains dimension? so that he remains in the range of the effectiveness along the continuum. By remaining within the range of his greatest effectiveness, he should be able to maximize his rewards and thus possess a positive attitude towards school. I hate it. Or students seem calmer and happier when the, when the music is on and do better work. Like that's yeah, that's what, that's what it should be. Yeah. Is that did you say it was a high school paper that it was that? a university, university. An, edu- an education student, so it was a college paper. Okay. Um, I mean, I know all about the effort continuum or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Naturally, um, and the effectiveness along the, effectiveness the effort continuum. Con- yeah. But the thing is, like, that is a writing that we slip into because there's something where we're embarrassed to say students seem calmer and happier when the music's on. Doesn't sound as good. It doesn't sound it's as not good. as impressive. Yeah. Um, Again, my fears of ChatGPT is that the data set skews towards more of these tonal errors, especially pomposity and maybe highbrowism, but maybe more pomposity than it does on sort of quality writing. So what was, what was pomposity or highbrowism? We'll get to that. Yeah, okay. Highbrowism is where it is. Um, it's close to it, but this is where it's sort of more deliberate. The other one is, I think, AJ, you're right, it's got like a, a CYA going on, like people don't yes. want to get in trouble. Right. And so they're using sort of... Um, that more scientific language where you as an actor are removing yourself from the actions so that if it goes wrong, yeah, like mistakes were made. If it goes um, wrong, no one gets If it goes you. wrong, no one's going to blame you. If the students uh, really have a bad freshman year, he says, well, I did just express my hope that you would have a good year. Uh, right, so there, there's... I promise you would. There's an emotional detachment. Right. Um, that's but are you talking about pomposity, that's pomposity or highbrowism? Highbrowism is where you are probably trying to show off let me read you the, the, the highbrowism paragraph. This feels like the one where you have the thesaurus virus. Exactly. So this, so this is close to pomposity. This is more deliberate. This is a fine writing that is born out of insecurity. So here's the paragraph. <laughs> <clears throat> He's talking about a poem, uh, a T.S. Eliot poem called The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Sure. Well, I know that one. I know. Women Ap- come and go. Apologies for my bad German. <clears throat> the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock is a version, is a vision of the relativism of our time. 
I should, have been a, I should have been a pair of ragged claws is but a distant paraphrase of Rilke's Der Panther and its Vreische Gang Geschmädig Starker Schreiter. To understand both works, one profits immensely by an acquaintance with the existentialist vision of Jean-Paul Sartre in The Roots of the Chestnut Tree and Camus in The Myth of Sisyphus. It's profound. That's, hi, that's highbrowism. I'm tracking. Highbrowism is where you are jamming as many illusions to other things as possible in attempt that the audience says, ooh, he's smart and I dumb. I've, so I've read <laughs> books where instead of using perfectly passable English words, they use foreign words instead and then don't explain them. Like they use German, Gewuschendost. Yes. yes. And, and you could just say fear. This is a perfect yeah. example yeah. of, of uh, yes, of this. Now, in fairness, like C.S. Lewis does do this a couple of times when he throws in a couple of Latin or Greek phrases mm-hmm. in yeah. there. Um, but in his defense, he was coming from a system where people would know some of those. Yes. Right? Where um, it was more common knowledge when he's coming from. Now, this hybridism is more where the writer cares about themselves as the writer more than mm-hmm. the writer cares about the reader. All the information they're conveying. Stonenbell goes on to say, like, the act of a good writer is to be charitable to the reader where he is trying to make the gap between what the writer is saying and what the reader is hearing as small as possible. And if you are a charitable writer, you are trying to make that gap as small as possible so that the reader can get on board with what you as the writer are saying. But highbrowism is trying to make the gap not as wide as possible is try is intentionally trying to widen the gap so that because and he's he claims because of the insecurity of the writer mm-hmm. that you actually don't want to put your idea out in a simple way so that it can be criticized by somebody that in a simple way to understand so you hide it behind saying things like to understand both works one profits immensely by reading like Sartre and Camus it feels like the I love how he he connects these faults faults in tone to faults in character. Yes, he says this is where it comes from, mm-hmm. right? And he you may be right. You may get a lot out of Proof Rock by leading Camus and and Sartre. You probably would. You probably would. Um, but this paragraph isn't going to make connect those dots for you. Right. He's just going to say if you're not someone who's already connected those dots, what are you doing reading my book right now? Right? Yeah. It's so the highbrowism is a lot more almost antagonistic to the reader. Whereas pomposity is a lot more indifferent yep. to the reader or to the audience. So, um, so later, doesn't he talk about how the more words you use to convey your idea, the more obstacles the, the reader has to go through yeah. to get to them? Mm-hmm. And same with packing your writing full of nouns, right? They are, they are things that the reader has to deal with to get to your idea. And it seems like good writing is trying to clear as many of those obstacles away, whereas mm-hmm. this highbrowism is trying to throw as many, ob- like think of a conveyor belt. It's throwing mm-hmm. big blocks in the conveyor belt that the reader has to jump over to get to your idea, yeah. right? Whereas your idea should be clear those obstacles away. Stone and Bell in, in that paragraph says this, which is quite delightful. What is, what is wrong with this passage is not that Rilke, Camus, and Sartre are irrelevant, but that they are dragged in by the ears, introduced for self-advertising <laughs> yeah. reasons rather than for what they contribute to the discussion. Dragged in by the ears is such a lovely What a image. wonderful... Now, um, what he is doing by talking about being dragged in by the ears is a, uh, uh, is a preference, which is to try to make things more human and less abstract, more personal and less impersonal. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that in a second. But anyway, um, and then the last, um, the last tonal error that he gives is one of flippancy, um, and, and, and flippancy is where, um, you are giving off, you are taking a serious subject lightly where you are basically, um, uh, communicating your distaste of the, the, the enterprise that you're doing using a flippant tone. Mm-hmm. Again, our students also don't need to be educated in this. Uh, it, they come <laughs> by it naturally. They, they have it already. They got it down naturally. Um, and he says this can come two ways directly as in like somebody, um, uh, he says, here's an example from a freshman theme. And the theme was, did write a, write a, uh, a, th- a paper or write an essay, a paragraph talking about what you did last summer. Okay. So this is what the freshman wrote. I thought themes on what I did last summer went out with the Model Ts. But since they didn't, I'll dig right in. For there's no, no point in flunking out of this school before I've given it a whirl. <laughs> I'll tell you what I did last summer. I worked in a canning factory. Oh. And I'll tell you what I did in that canning factory every chance I got. 
I sat on my can. But dumb. Now, yes. the thing is, pretty clever, it's pretty, yeah, pretty clever. Yeah. But the tone is communicating what the Contempt. person thinks about this. Yeah. Now, I personally don't necessarily think this is a tonal error, but, it, but I mean, it's, it's definitely uncharitable. Well, as a reader, do you want to keep reading what no, he's writing? No, you don't. You and don't, that's a tonal error. That's if, a tonal if error. It's not, mm-hmm. con, it's not conveying a, I care about this, you should care about it too, you're yes. doing something wrong. Now, he can, if the writer is somebody that is going to be against the, the topic that he's writing about, he needs to do it in such a way that he welcomes the reader in his conspiracy against this topic as well. Yeah. Right? So At the end of it, the reader should think the same thing. Yes. And the reader should feel like he's been brought in to the writer's uh, antagonism towards the topic and you're kind of in the same together. Instead of wondering why he is going to continue reading this if the author doesn't care about That's it. That's right. Yeah. So, and, th- and then the other way to be flippant is you are in fact just like kind of out to lunch and, um, and again, this book was written in 1968. So, uh, this is my, this is probably my favorite example that he gives. Um, so Stone and Bell says, some writers seem to think that whatever emerges from their gut is sacred and should be recorded without modification for posterity to ponder. Mm-hmm. Their teacher rarely agrees and hence a conflict <laughs> arises. One only partly related to be sure to the question of tone. Here is the beginning of a theme on the assignment is it ever permissible to break the law? So some well-meaning mm-hmm. philosophy professor or law professor set out the assignment, is it ever permissible to break the law? And his little beatnik student wrote this. I started to think. I thought, questions like that just don't turn me on, man. I mean, how do you answer questions like that when those questions don't really exist? Wow. I moved on to what was important. What was important was the music. And the music told me all about law that I needed to know. I just took the hand of that music and it led me right between the cliff of, cliffs of right and wrong. Mm. It led me out, man. And it didn't matter whether the law said it was right or wrong. That's a great. And that's the beginning of the, the student's answer to is it ever permissible to break the law? <laughs> now, he's saying that this is flippant. I don't know if it's, it's flippant the right word for that. Um, well, he's not going to actually address the question. Or he's, he's making light it. of a serious issue by saying that the music, music brings us through the cliffs of right and wrong. <laughs> like right and wrong don't exist because, because of music? music? Yeah. Like that's, that, it's a dodge. Yeah. Um, he says, flippancy aside, this, ki- this kind of psychedelic free association is of no use to anyone. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay, psychedelic like that, free association? Yeah. I would read that book. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I just want to read this book. This is, yeah, this so, is those, so those are sort of errors in tone. But then he goes and he does say, listen, there are things that you can, so, he's, uh, so that you can prefer. There, um, so, that, um, so that you don't just fall into, and I think most modern writing, especially in the information economy, especially when people are trying to churn out lots of copy in a business sense, or you were writing emails all day, uh, and you're like, oh man, wouldn't it be great if like a computer could write emails all day? Means that we are going to be awash in probably that more what he calls the pompous tone, that um, that disassociated tone, that tone that is, is uh, not real but too formal, that translates personal relations into abstractions. Do you, I feel like maybe it's just that we are going to get the same kind of bizarre error that we see from real androids that it looks like human emotion. There's like an uncanny valley of but it's communicating. But qu- it's not quite, yeah. right? When a, when a robot furrows its brow, I don't actually feel like anything's being furrowed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yes. I, I think that's part of it. I, like it's, I, a, it's a facsimile of real human thought, but not the real thing. And it'll always feel like it. I just think that the way that we communicate on the internet is going to feel like we're stuck in a perpetual present. Like it's just good. Like all of the diction and all of the terms and all of even the jokes or even the, the ways to try to inject a little personality and humor are going to be automated, automated from like how human beings like to communicate from like 2007 to 2021 or 2023 or whatever. But the problem is it's not even the best of it. It's, it is pulling directly from the middle. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And in looking at the things that I've sent you, I also have took a moment to edit one of them. The thing that was talking about style and how, how Mm -hmm. to do it well. And I edit it using the rules that it was giving yeah. and it doesn't even follow them. Right. And it, it makes several errors that I encourage my students against. Like it will always be mediocre. Mm-hmm. It'll never be Hemingway. It'll never be Shakespeare. Unless you never train be your language good. model on Hemingway. Like, I don't know, man. Like you, yeah, but you could, but 
that's not what people are going to use. And if, if it is, yeah. if it is Hemingway, then yeah. it'll be almost Hemingway. Yeah, and, but not quite. Yeah. Yeah. And everything will sound like Hemingway. Yeah. Uh, it'll get, I don't know. It's maybe we just need to give it the greats as its training set. And maybe it would be a little bit better, but I think it'll still make some of these errors because it has to aim for the middle. It has to aim for the things it's sure of. Just depends on the goal. Cause again, like yeah. in terms of like automating all your business copy, all your business emails, I think this gets the job done. And that, and that's, that's the current version of yeah. ChatGPT or BARD or whatever you're using. That's not including whatever improvements are made over time. Sure. So. But is it going to get to the point where it can write like a really gripping spy novel that you buy in the airport? I buy it. Like, I think probably. that's the kind of, yeah. I think that's the direction. They'll probably get there. Yeah. 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 Um, but anyway, don't fear, dear listener, there are ways that you can improve your own sort of writing so that you don't have to fall into those tonal errors or feel like you are playing a losing game to a AI that can write boring copy better and faster than you can. Um, there are, uh, preferences. There's like a checklist of preferences that you can go through. And I know that this is probably rehashing a bit of an ancient episode, but it's worth maybe sort of uh, bringing back again in our in this current time. The first preference, and this is, I think, the number one skill that if you wanted to develop a way to be a better writer, the best thing you can do is improve your vocabulary of verbs. Hmm. Um, if you can have more verbs at your fingertips for your writing, that is going to absolutely elevate the way that you can communicate. Because, um, so the first thing is, is to prefer verbs to nouns. That is the first preference you should have. Nouns make a sentence cluttered and heavy because nouns are objects that we try to like picture in our minds. And so if you have too many nouns in a sentence, you have a sentence that is sort of cluttered with stuff and usually the verb that you end up going for is some kind of passive verb like a to be or, um, or, or, or something like that. So quick, quick uh, mm-hmm. logic note. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that writers use the verb of to be like is, am, are, was, were, this is this, this is this, mm-hmm. this is this, is because every statement in the human language that isn't, you know, a command or a question, every statement can be distilled down to an is. Yeah. Right. This is this is a logic oh. thing. Categorical categorical logic is based on this concept. Instead of saying I like soup, you can say soup is a thing that I like. Now you've taken what was a good verb like and turned it into a yes. verb of to be is. And now you've turned that thing that was a verb centered sentence into two objects, yes. soup and things I like. Now the the trend of human communication is in this direction because it's easy it is and easy. because it has that pompous tone. Yes. So it's b- because of those two things. You will always revert to that to be verb and the problem with it is that then your writing becomes a series of equal signs. None of the none of the nouns are doing anything. Right. They're all just sitting around and you're saying this is that, this is that, this is that. It becomes a categorization and identifying procedure rather than talking about things alive in the world. And sorry, I, I sort no, of no, no. This it. is good. This is where I wanted to go because I even think it is that it has kind of this slightly little pernicious way of the way that we think about people because it is easy. We eventually move towards categorizing with object is object or object is category. Jeff is a Republican. Yes. Sam is a golfer. That's right. There's a there's a massive difference between saying that Thomas Magby is a data scientist. And Thomas Magby um, works like, for a think tank, or, or calculate, or Thomas Magby uh, calculates, mm. um, or Thomas Magby is a bus driver, and Thomas Magby drives a bus. Mm. Like one is making a statement about the essence of Thomas Magby, and the other one is describing an action that Thomas Magby does. And there, I think there's like w- the longer you do that, and the more that we live in language that is making declarative statements about the identity of someone with like using language as Mm -hmm. an equal sign, the more that we tend to think that, um, the most well-defined identity of a person is the most important thing we can say about that person. Maybe I'm overstating this, but, uh, yes, Jeff is a Republican as opposed to Jeff has voted Republican in every election. That opens up a window for having Jeff to be different. And to do other stuff. And then do other stuff as opposed to the first one is saying like, Jeff is a... His identity is Republican. fixed, closed thing. Yeah. Whereas the other one is saying like, Jeff is a human being that has been doing this, you know, like, I don't know. And it lends motion to the sentence. He votes Republican, Mm -hmm. right? Rather than he is a Republican. In that one, it's just an equal sign. Jeff and Republican rather than Jeff is voting, which gives him motion. And and gives him agency. Yeah. Um, When we 
talk about things, we um, tend to then uh, like nounify sentences, nounify like clusters of verbs. Let me give you an example. Um, let's say that you had a book and I said, the subject of this book is low budget sports promotion techniques. Oh my, so low oh, budget, low budget sports promotion techniques is now acting as like this giant, uh, a noun in the sentence. Yep. Um, really when I could say this book tells you how to promote, promote sports without spending too much money. I've put in promote and spending as my verbs, mm -hmm. whereas before I said this book is low-budget sports promotion technique book. Um, the, 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 I think the reason prefer the, people prefer the first mm -hmm. not only is because it has a verb of to be, which is easy, right? Mm -hmm. That's an easy thing to select, but because it sounds pompous. It, it makes sounds it sound smart. Yes. Then there's a, oh, there's a it's whole category. Low-promotion sports sport, book, book techniques. I didn't even know that this was like a kind of book. Oh, my word. Yeah. This is so important. Yeah. Whereas, oh, the book tells me how to promote local sports without spending money. Oh, okay, cool. I guess I'll read it. You know, like, yes. Yeah. Um, but the second one is, first, way easier to absorb yeah. because promoting and spending are verbs that we can kind of, like, picture as opposed to a to-be verb of a complicated noun, <laughs> low-budget sports promotion techniques. Yeah. And when you were right, when a student is writing an essay or when people are writing things, we, d we go, we defer, just as AJ said, to the to be verbs. So if you, and we also live in a tremendously visual culture where you don't need to learn verbs when you're watching something. Mm. Like we joked about the Marvel movies mm -hmm. in our, not joked about them, we talked about the Marvel movies in our, in our AMA and I rolled my eyes because I don't like Marvel movies. But if I went to a Marvel movie with AJ that I've never seen, I would, every time something came on the screen, I'd be like, hey, AJ, who's that? Right. And he'd be like, that's Bug Boy or whatever. Uh, and I'd be like, hey, who's that? He'd be like, that's... Um, Big Daddy. Big Daddy. <laughs> and I'd be like, who's that? He'd be like, that's Thor. Yeah. But if the Marvel superheroes were not, were flying across the screen, like towards the bad guy, I wouldn't say, hey, AJ, would you describe their motion as like ejecting or as catapulting? Right, like right. how? What, what's the best verb to describe how they're moving? We always be like, "Oh, cool." Well, that and the human mind is basically in the practice of categorizing. Yes, that's yeah. that's how our knowledge functions. We mm -hmm. take things and we put them into categories, and so it is easy for us to default into that kind of behavior. Yeah, right. So, like, I think one of the examples is what McCormick invented a corn picking machine. Yeah, rather than or one of Cormick's, McCormick's inventions is a corn picking machine, rather than. McCormick invented a machine that picks it corn. Picks mm. corn, yes. Right, so one lends motion to the sentence. The machine is picking corn. That's really McCormick great. That's exactly what it is. Uh, Fifty years ago, it would have been the natural. It would have been natural to write. McCormick also invented a machine for picking corn. Today, we incline to write another of McCormick's invention was a mechanical corn picker. I told you, I remember everything <laughs> I read. Everything. Um, <laughs> I've just taught this a gajillion times. Anyway, um, but yes. So, if you want to. It's such an it's such an easy thing to do, but if you want to elevate your ability to communicate, learn verbs, have verbs at your fingertips, and know their definitions, and be able to deploy them in sentences, and your life jumps off the page. Whenever I teach this to students, every couple of times I say, "All right, you need to in this paragraph that you just wrote find a to be verb." change the sentence to give me an active verb, so a verb that's doing something. Instead of a linking verb. Instead of a linking verb, um, because it absolutely makes your sentence come alive. Now, the other, it's not just to be verbs, which are, um, uh, which are, are bad. Uh, the other, uh, it's linking verbs. So verbs like be, become, look, seem, appear, affect. These are all kind of crappy verbs to use. It's all a version of the equal sign. Yeah, I hate affect. If I said, hey, Thomas, AJ affects me. Mm. What have or I said? What am I saying? Nothing. We it's have no vagary. idea. Even if I greatly affect you, you that could, could mean you that could I greatly affect that me. mean that I could uh, maybe I lopped your leg off, or you are desperately in love. That's with right. Me. Every <laughs> time I see AJ in the halls, I just like can't take my eyes off him. Versus every time I see AJ in the halls, I want to throw him out the window. Yeah. I'm both affected by him. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Sorry. Even there, notice the tendency. I said you are greatly in love with me mm -hmm. instead of you love me desperately. Yes. Which yeah. would be a better sentence. There you go. So every year you get a student that says uh, Romeo was affected by Juliet, and I, I I'm like you have you, you he gave her pneumonia. Yeah, he, <laughs> she got the plague. Yeah. Um, right. So those kinds of linking verbs are uh, uh, are 
I mean, there's no getting around them sometimes, but they should be avoided. You want an active verb. You want us, you need to put a verb where the subject is doing something. And by the way, greatly affect is one of the things I instantly cross out in any paper. And I think actually ChatGPT used it <laughs> in, in explaining the, oh, yeah. the style. So if you use greatly affect, try to be specific about what's going on rather than just leaving it as greatly mm. affect. Tell us what's happening. Um, so here we go. Uh, when once people said George drives well, George drives a bus, we now say George is a good driver. George is a bus driver. An action verb drive has dwindled into a noun, leaving the field to be linked to the linking verb is. Is supplies no motion to a sentence. It is inert, a kind of equal sign between nouns. No writer, of course, can avoid is and are, was and were, but good writers are always on the lookout to replace them with verbs of greater impact. Um, passive. It has been decided that a 10% tax increase is necessary. Active linking verb. Our conclusion is that taxes must be increased 10%. Here's an, uh, an active action verb. We have decided on a 10% tax increase. And here's something more forceful. We propose to increase taxes 10%. So that last so one is the best The last one. one is the best one. That's actually a great example because you don't want to say we're the ones proposing this. Yes. Now, he says there are times when you want to soften it and remove responsibility, like when yep. you're a politician and you right. don't want to tell people you're raising taxes. It has been decided that a 10% tax increase is necessary. It's a great way to hide. But then, so if you're saying that hiding is a, an appropriate goal, then... Doesn't that mean bad yes. language is sometimes necessary? But, bad but language, yeah. I, the thing is, is I wonder how effective a politician would be or a business would be if they didn't hide, if they were brave. If he said, this is what I propose. It's not proposed by someone else. I'm I am proposing this. it. I stand beside this thing. Or if mm -hmm. a business, if, if, if any like business George, ever told me, yeah, I was we made a mistake, one, yeah. like, uh, we're sorry, yeah. we'll, we'll own it and we'll make it right, yeah. I would never go to any other place, yeah. right? I think they're afraid of it because of litigation, which is, which is possibly true. true. I could maybe sue. But I would, I would be loyal to that place forever because they were willing oh, to be brave and stick to what they had done. Read my lips. No, no new taxes, and then right? Were, and then there were new taxes. And then there was new taxes. <laughs> but I mean, but like there, there's an example. And, then, and the other thing is, it's a quote we remember. Yeah. Um, but that, that's maybe a whole different conversation. But, though the, but by getting action verbs and preferring verbs to noun, you automatically change the whole tenor of your sentences. And yes, I kind of do think that a world awash with to be verbs is a world awash with playing some kind of game of, of, of really trying to um, nail down identity. It almost like traps people in, in, in to be sentences. Right. Um, Megby is a bus driver. Um, maybe is communicating more, then you, maybe you're sort of like, people start, bringing in all of their associations about like what the, a bus the, the status of a bus driver in society yep. versus Megby drives a bus is I, I, I also even think that saying Megby drives a bus is kind of a more, I don't know, I don't know if it's charitable, but it gives you an out from being just a bus driver. It's more accurate because the only thing that is, is the action, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There is not a set of mm -hmm. associations that should go along with yes. that. Yes. It's an interesting idea. I haven't thought about all that. Um, there's other ones. Uh, the, he, maybe the other one that we, we can uh, talk about, I think the last two is um, prefer the concrete to the abstract. Um, so try to give us concrete nouns. If we're going to talk about nouns, we should have concrete nouns as opposed to abstract nouns. Um, abstract nouns, nouns stand for ideas. So like a house is a concrete noun. Housing is an abstract noun. Um, um, a tree is a concrete noun. Um, uh, even like nature is an abstract noun. Justice is abstract. Jails are concrete. Yes. Um, um, so I've got a great example. Yeah, of this. go for it. So years ago, when a student was talking about their thesis, they knew this rule and they were mm -hmm. trying to adhere to it. And they wanted to say it was about, I think, medical culpability. And they wanted to have it be a situation where doctors got to judge between each other and weren't necessarily subject to the judgments of their peers all the time, but mm -hmm. got to appear on the judging panel. And you could say they had the opportunity to judge among their peers rather than consistently being judged by their peers. 
And so wondering how to make that concrete. And so we said they got to spend more time on the judge's bench than in the defendant's dock, mm-hmm. right? So there I talk about judge's bench, defendant's dock. Now it's an extra step for the writer. And that's why it's hard to write this way is because you have to think of your idea and then think how to demonstrate that in concretes. But if you have faith in your writer your, or your reader, your reader will make the association or connection and your writing will be more interesting for mm-hmm. it. So there's some great examples in Stone and Bell if you have them. Yeah, um, one of the examples, so... Um, there's, there's a couple of, of reasons why we should have more concrete nouns than abstract nouns. Um, abstract nouns usually tend to take a, a, a tamer and weak verb, like cause, of, refer to, consist of. Um, um, whereas something more concrete is sort of easier for us to picture and to sort of absorb by listening. Um, so it's like the difference. So it's like saying uh, we should have better food in the vending machines. So by saying better food, I it's a little, it's abstract because Thomas could hear that and he could say, sweet, we're going to have like... Burgers. Hamburgers in the vending machine. Sign me up. And, uh, and AJ hears that and he says, finally, we're going to have like kale salad. <laughs> we're going to be healthy at this school. Right. And both of you have this concept of better, but by me saying we need to have better vending machines, you're both going to vote for me, but you have no idea what I'm talking about. In concrete terms, if I said we need to have um, we need to have hamburgers, we need a vending machine that gives us hamburgers. That's concrete, and um, and it's you know, and uh, I'd vote for that guy. I want hamburgers. So one of the examples that's in Stonebell mm-hmm. is you could say a period of unfavorable weather set in, which sounds it's the, it's got that highbrowism, <laughs> yeah. yeah. right? right. Um, but the better version is it rained every day for a week. Mm-hmm. Right. You can put together that it's a period of unfavorable weather. You have to have faith in your reader that they'll know what you're saying. Or what was it? He felt excellent as he pocketed his well as he took took possession of his well earned reward versus he grinned as he pocketed the coin. Right. Mm-hmm. Put it put it concrete. We got pockets and coins versus felt accomplished when he took possession of his well-earned reward, right? So prefer the concrete because it's more interesting to read. It's just easier to digest. It is an extra step for the yes. writer, but it's better for the reader. He says, you know, take something like Tom is brave or the situation is desperate. Makes no sense without particulars. For example, um, we may know that Tom is brave because he stood up against a bully or saved a child from a fire. The situation may be desperate because enemy tanks are only a mile away or because dad cannot find a job. Um, he greatly affected her because he gave her pneumonia. <laughs> yes. So by putting in sort of concrete things, uh, it makes it, it makes the sentence sort of at a human level. Um, so, um, so this yeah. is a mistake that ChatGPT makes all the time. Yes. They do a thing called, I, I call setup and punchline sentences where they say like, mm. Jenny greatly affected Tom. And then it will have to explain. She him in the face. Yeah. And then it will have to explain what that greatly affected is, right? He punched her in the face. You don't need the first part. You can just say he punched her in the face, right? I can put together that he greatly affected her or that she greatly affected him. I don't need that setup. And so it, it is still a mistake that ChatGPT makes and it's a mistake my students make. They say this and then they sort of give me the rest of the information that explains it when I can make that connection for myself as the reader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stone and Bell kind of gives a justification as to why he thinks we move into abstractions or move into this pompous style. Mm-hmm. He says, some writers mistakenly feel that abstractions lend tone to writing, that they are more dignified than everyday words like cat and dog. Others use abstractions to avoid committing themselves to particulars, which means, in effect, to avoid the kind of careful thinking and articulation of thought that goes into all good writing. So it's like the CYA, uh, the CYA of, of the business world, that you don't want to put yourself, you don't want to be so closely associated with an idea that if it fails, you're the failure. Um, or, or you're a lazy thinker. Or you're a lazy You're a ninth thinker. grader and you want to say greatly affects because you don't actually know how mm-hmm. one affects the other. In both cases, the results tend to be vague and irritating. So he says, the following sentences from student themes illustrate the point. So here is the wrong sentence, the abstract sentence. Other lessons were absorbed through his experiences. (laughs) Wow. And here is maybe the correct one that's given some concrete things. He learned even more from talking with the lumberjacks. Hey, now we even know what we're talking about, (laughs) right? Um, Here's another one. Attitudes and opinions resulted from these environmental occurrences <laughs> were all he needed to know about Boston was what he could see from his window 
and what his nurses told him. Right now, we, you know, we almost have like a picture of some right. dude learning about the city because of looking out the window. And why his does nurses, he have nurses? Uh, yeah, why does he have nurses? We want to know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I want to keep reading as opposed to attitudes and opinion resulted from his environmental occurrences. Um, so we want to try to remove as many of that abstract as we can. And it does mean putting um, um, concrete things into our sentences. And sometimes people feel like it's maybe, I don't know, unprofessional. Hmm. Because, That's what I assume. Yeah. Because, the, because it is too... Um, uh, I think because yeah. academic writing doesn't sound like this. Yes. If you ever read a philosopher, mm-hmm. they deal in abstracts a lot. And I don't, I don't think that's a feature. I think that's a flaw. Mm-hmm. And similar to this, um, we should be doing this not just with concrete and abstract nouns, but we should be trying to make, uh, to try to put people into our sentences as opposed to impersonal things in our sentences. And this is the difference by, uh, about ta- the, between like talking about Dr. Bob and talking about medical professionals, yeah. right? Like um, um, the difference between it was necessary to get some sleep and the boys need to get to bed, right? right? By making it personal, those sentences are a lot more clear and you, you communicate a lot more with less words. Um, but it takes a little more forethought. Uh, it takes a bigger verb vocabulary and... Um, um, and uh, it almost takes a little bit more creativity, right? Like the drug would be lethal if swallowed is okay, but this drug would kill any 100-pound teenager that took it. It's like, whoa, all, you know, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, some poor 15-year-old girl. Like you're talking about yeah. the lethality of this drug by giving me a concrete example, a personal example. Okay, um, I, yeah, should we stop? It. We're at like 70 minutes. That's fine. We should probably stop. Um, people do you want to do a part two? We, uh, no, I don't have anything else to say. Um, <laughs> you can go check out our previous episode on how yeah. to write Gooder. It has, it has all these rules. I mean, we can, we can talk maybe more about implications of this in, in the in-between episode. Um, but my hope is just that like we, we're going to be more, we're going to be surrounded by AI generated copy for the foreseeable future. And if at least we can, if we can do this, we can maybe give a better data set to the AI to become yeah. a better writer, <laughs> yeah. or we can figure out ways to sort of break out of it ourselves so there is something worth reading as opposed to like the same old kind of computer-generated um, mm-hmm. uh, writing out there. Anyway, that's just, those are my thoughts. Yeah, and don't you dare buy a copy of Stone and Bell. It's out of print, and oh. I want there, there to still be copies when I need to give them to students. That's so terrible. don't you dare buy it. I think you can find PDFs of it online probably. Probably. Mine was a gift from a student and um, with a very lovely note at the front talking yeah. about uh, writing well. So, Yeah, it's super good. And this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. Three guys in Austin, Texas. That's right. And you can reach out to us at theguysatclassicalstuff.net. You can find all our episodes on our website and as well as, you know, Apple or wherever you're currently listening. You can tweet at us at CLSSCAL stuff. You can, what else we got to do? Uh, Patreon. Patreon. Oh, Patreon. Yeah, you can also pay if you if you like our podcast, you can patronize patronize us at patreoncom stuff. We've got in between episodes there, and you can listen to our Ask Us Anything episodes. And if you're a patron, you can even ask us questions. We can true. respond Dang. to you. So anyway, we love our patrons. Thank you guys for supporting us, and we love our listeners. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you hopefully next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.